Which which uh, which which dialect of Fortran? Well, uh, I had been taught what five, obviously at Waterloo. Sorry, wait, pause. What five? What's what? Well, five? what five is obviously what comes after what four, which is short for Waterloo <laughs> Fortran. It's pretty. Cool. <laughs> oh really? Yes. Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 92, recorded on August 15th, 2022. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we interview the one and only Kate Gregory. Anyways, today, as promised, we have the esteemed Kate Gregory. We are definitely going to talk about, uh, do a little CPP North retro, and maybe talk a little bit about carbon, because obviously you're, you're involved there. But in preparation... Uh, for this podcast, I went back and listened to CPP Cast episode thirty, uh, which has a special place in my heart because it's you basically prepared for this podcast. Of course, unlike you, Bryce, I prepare for these podcasts because uh, I love I love these podcasts. And Kate has had a big influence on my career. Episode thirty of CPP Cast, uh, I basically stole the title from my algorithm intuition talk that later on became like a trilogy from that episode when you were talking about algorithms and how we needed to have intuition for algorithms. And I wanted to see how much of an introduction uh, they gave you because they could, they read your bio. Um, and then in that, the, in that episode, you mentioned briefly that before you came to C++, you did a little bit of Fortran and PL1. And That's my sandwich. Okay. Unimportant. Bryce, <laughs> unimportant. I'm in the middle of making a point here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rob mentioned that basically part of the reason he started CPP Cast is from listening to you as a guest on .NET Rocks, which is a podcast actually that I had until today never listened to because I don't do anything in .NET. And I also like to go back and listen to all of the episodes of a podcast I listen to from like episode zero. And there's like thousands yeah, of that's .NET a no, Rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like... I can't really start listening because it would destroy like a year of my podcast listening. Uh, what I did though do is go back and what I, I, I found what I thought was the first one was you going on in 2008. Um, but they were talking for like the first 20 minutes about threading and like two very specific timing libraries and like some .NET stack. And I was like, there's no way this is how they're introducing Kate. Sure enough, it was actually like your fifth appearance. And your first one was on November 8th, 2004. And that was sort of when they did uh, an introduction of you. But it's still, it was not the story of Kate Gregory. Um, and so now I've just rambled on for a bit. Uh, anyone that sort of is in the C++ community and watches talks will know Kate. So she really, she needs no introduction. Uh, I think you've been programming, it says in your bio, from 1979, which is like over 40 years now, which is like a full decade before either Bryce and I were born. Uh, so you're really making us look bad in terms of experience. Um, you're a uh, Microsoft uh, MVP. How many? Do you know how many years running you've been? Because I think you've, it's been year after year after year that you've been an MVP. What is a Microsoft MVP? So historically, uh, historically, the MVPs were people who were very active on CompuServe. I don't even know what that is. What is CompuServe? <laughs> <laughs> ah, you can look it up on Wikipedia. Before there was an internet, you could dial up to things. And you could talk to people by topic area. And CompuServe was, I don't know, like pre-AOL. was for the Cognoscenti, I guess. And, um, and there were forums for Microsoft stuff like 
I don't understand this this error I'm getting from the compiler. Mm-hmm. And and various volunteer people would answer these questions in addition to paid actual support workers. And Microsoft decided that if they threw a little swag at those folks, they wouldn't need to hire so many support workers. It's very smart. Very smart. So that was the that was kind of the origin of the MVP program, and it's it used to just be, entirely be your online contributions, you know, like some forum or another. And when, once the internet comes along, you know, what's your Stack Overflow reputation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then around the turn of the century, they're like, you know, there's other ways for people to contribute, and this person's written a whole bunch of books, and that probably counts. And so then I got to be an MVP, which was fun. And so uh, for for decades, basically, you've been an MVP. Then yes. So, and it sounded, if you said 80s, you've also, not only have you been programming for over a decade longer than either Bryce and I have been alive, you've been an MVP for longer than we've been alive as well. Well, no, I don't think you're, I don't think you're 18, Connor. Um, I see. You said eight, uh, 18 years, not 1980s. I see. Yeah, I see, I see. yeah, yeah. Um, it was, it, I think it was like early in this, the turn of the century, but I, I, I'm not at home or I would take you over to the bookshelf of showing off where I have... Um, all a bunch the, of awards. Yeah, they, they send you stuff. They, they they send me a lot of plexiglass. They're really into like little plexiglass cubes with things engraved in them. And the MVP program sends you uh, eight and a half by 11 certificate thingamies that you could put on the wall. And the stack of them is like six inches thick. Because they send me one every year and I just put it in front of the one before. <laughs> wow. Well, we will in a future recording... Uh, have you record from home and then I don't know or maybe we'll get you to just to send us a photo at some point because this probably won't air of the until bookshelf like of showing off um, but the point about being MVP is that it's not necessarily um, Microsoft declaring that you're really smart or you're really knowledgeable you actually have to be really generous mm-hmm. I mean if you were generous and stupid and kept giving people bad advice you probably wouldn't qualify but it's people who just give information. They help other people. Um, conference talks and books count, so that's how, how I get it. But also, you know, not answering a million questions on Stack Overflow, whatever, um, and and getting rid of things that are keeping people from using Microsoft products, which in my case would be Visual C plus plus. So yeah, we will have links to, I mean, all of that info. And this is we have that's like just scratching the surface of Kate's bio. Uh, you also recently, I mean, you've had Pluralsight courses from the past, but you've just released a new one. You recently published a book with Guy Davidson, which there was also a CPP cast episode about. Great On top book. Of that, I love that book. Yeah, it's one of the few. I mean, Bryce doesn't read a lot of books, and it's one of the few books that uh, Bryce has read and has positive things to say about. Although I haven't heard you say bad things about other books. but It's one just... of the few books that I can recommend. Yes. There, there are a lot of very bad C++ books. Like well, you... no, no, it's, the reason it's one of the few books that I can recommend is because it's a book that's a collection of like, like the chapters are like, you know, concrete recommendations. Yes. So it's in some ways like a collection of guide, of specific concrete guidance, sort of like effective C++. Yes. Um, and uh, that I think is something that like is useful to me. I'm not somebody that's going to sit down and read like a, a programming book normally. But something like that, that 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 style, that format, like I can, I can respect that, and that's also something that like I would go and take concrete lessons from that. Perhaps we chose thirty that we thought would be really applicable to the most people, the most immediately usable. Uh, some of the guidelines are barely guidelines. They're like try to write readable code. Okay, <laughs> you know. Like, <laughs> It's, it's not 
It's not what you'd call precise, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and some of them only apply to certain people or only in certain circumstances or what have you. But we sort of went through and found some that we thought were immediately useful. And then their secondary purpose is the whole thing is kind of an ad for the guidelines. Like if you find these 30 are good, now that someone sat you down and walked you through them in a lot more detail than what you get online, maybe you'll be prepared to trust some of the other couple of hundred as well. You know, they're not explained quite the same way, but they are still good advice. We will leave links uh, to the book to all of... So uh, Kate's been on CPPcast three times from episode 30. I wrote them down to 148 to 238. Uh, I think you were on .NET Rocks like 10 or 11 times from what I could count. And that's just those two podcasts. Uh, You've had a a prolific uh, career of being interviewed on different podcasts. I will compile a list of all that I can get my hands on. Uh, I can't say I've listened to all of them. I've listened to all the CPP cast ones. Your your, um, interview on co-recursive as well, slightly a different tone than like super technical, but an amazing listen um, that everyone as, you know, even feel free to pause this episode and go listen to that one right now and then come back when you're done because that one's fantastic as well. but I think to start, before we get to talking about, you know, maybe we'll talk about your Pluralsight course a little bit later and CPP North and Carbon, let's go back. Let's tell, and I'm not sure, maybe you can even um, refer listeners to an interview that I have yet to listen to on a different podcast where you tell some of, and maybe the co-recursive is a little bit of that as well, but let's go back to all the way either before Waterloo, which is where I happen to know, I think you went to study, um, and... I had very fun when I was listening to the first time you were on .NET Rocks, which I think was episode 88 in 2004. You actually mentioned APL. You probably have zero recollection of that. <laughs> uh, but I always love, even if it's just a short mention, and I'll, I'll let listeners go and discover what you said about it. Um, it was just a small mention. And I think at Waterloo, that was probably how you were exposed to it, because I do know that at some point they were teaching that. But yeah. Tell us how the story, you know, the brief history of Kate Gregory and how you, you know, got into computing and then, you know, the brief summary of your 40 year, which is probably going to be hard to sum- to summarize into, you know. In, in uh, five minutes. Yeah, that is a challenge. Um, well, you can have did, 30 if you want. Uh. <laughs> I did go to Waterloo and I went, uh, originally I was in the faculty of mathematics, which is where they teach computer science. And I was in a brand new program they just made, which was uh, computer science with an engineering minor. So I was minoring in ChemEng. And the program wasn't put together right. The, the classes you had to take from chemistry or from engineering conflicted with courses you had to take from math. Like they just hadn't thought it through. So it was very, very difficult, big struggle for me. And I did that for a year. And there was other things in my life that were difficult at the time. And I'm like, I don't want to be in this program anymore. So I transferred into engineering. And I ended up graduating from chemical engineering. So I just had yeah, a year and a bit of... Uh, officially computer science stuff, but I met all these people in the faculty of mathematics who were dear friends of mine, one of whom I ended up marrying. And so I sort of stayed connected into that world while I was taking engineering. And uh, Waterloo is co-op, for those who don't know, and engineering is 100% co-op. So you go to school for four months, then you work for four months, then you go to school for four months, then you work for four months. And at work, they teach you stuff like, oh, we need someone who can do this and who can do that. And so at some point, somebody taught me how to program in Fortran. Literally, some of the programs I worked on were in cards. Which which dialect of Fortran? Well, uh, I had been taught what five, obviously, at Waterloo. Sorry, wait, pause. What five? What's what five? Well, what five is obviously what comes after what four, which is short for Waterloo (laughs) Fortran. It's pretty cool. 
<laughs> oh really? Yes. I gotta. I'm gonna have to find dig some links up for that. What four is what five is what comes after what four, which is Waterloo four. So is that W A T F O R? Yes. Yes. And then there and then was then what there was five, and then five. there was what five S, which was structured, right? So that you're you're um you had the ends of ifs and the end, and you had loops and things rather than just all go tos. It's a big deal. I just get interview questions. Explain what makes a program structured. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard of this before. I mean, obviously I heard of Fortran, but not that Waterloo yeah. had their own variants of it. Yeah. So at some point I learned Fortran along the way, like partly at school and partly on work terms. And by the time I got to third or fourth year in engineering, they just assumed that somebody knew how to program. So they'd like, here's a group assignment. You need to take these measurements, write this program, draw this graph, blah, 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 divide it up amongst yourselves. And I was always the only one who knew how to program. So I did all the programming. And then I started ending up doing it on work terms, and um, and then it was sort of most of what I was doing was programming, which is fine. I was good at it. What is that like back, like, because that's pre-internet, right? So yes. there's no, like, my concept so of... So how, lo- how did you, how did you Google yeah. no, no, there's no all Google. the answers? There's that's what I'm no saying. Is my, my concept uh, of programming and, like, learning things doesn't exist it's not possible back then so what is it just reading texts and going to the library or it's a, it's a lot of books yeah it's like multiple books open on your desk at once it's talking to other humans in the building um it's i think there was some CompuServe action i can't remember exactly when CompuServe started someone's gonna have to go on wikipedia and look it up um but that idea of reaching out to strangers you know was super super impressive the moment it started and there were there was usenet news groups i remember that um, whole pile of uh, computing related uh, news groups mm-hmm. and stuff just took a lot longer you know because you didn't know how to do it so you know you'd keep trying until it would finally work kind of thing yeah um, and then after I'd been working for two years I'd always intended to go back to grad school and be a prof both my parents are profs I figured that would be a good thing to do Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a downturn in the industry and they wanted to, they didn't want to lay people off. I was working at time for, for Imperial Oil, which is SO in Canada, and they'd never laid anybody off ever and they didn't want to start. So they bribed you with money to go away on your own volition. Oh, what do they call that? <laughs> That's, um, they call buyouts? I can't remember. Yeah. So they offered me, I forget if it was three or four months gross salary. So if you think about how long it would take you to save three or four months of your gross. It's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And what's more, it could go into a retirement savings plan because it was considered a retirement allowance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have to pay taxes on it. So right, tax deferred. Yeah. So I did that. And, uh, and I went to do a master's at U of T and I was modeling the way your blood coagulates. And, uh, oh, wow. They said, this is a really juicy program problem that you've got here, and we think it's actually more of a PhD problem, so why don't you just switch to this joint uh, master's PhD program, which was considered to be a feather in my cap to qualify for. So I did that. Small pause while I had my first kid, and uh, and then I got my PhD from, from modeling blood coagulation, which was fun. But I learned that I did not want to be a prof because uh, my really? parents were profs in the six, late 60s and the 70s, and... Uh, in the 90s, uh, the life they had lived was not on offer to profs. It's all publish or perish, and mm. uh, I didn't want that. What did your, uh, just out of curiosity, because I think you are now the second guest 
that had two parents as professors. Dave Abrahams, if I'm not mistaken, when he was on, had two different, um, or had two parents, obviously, that <laughs> were both professors. Um, what did your parents teach? Was it is that what sort of led you down the the, the mathematical engineering? Yeah, they they route? started out in, in physics. Uh, and my mom ended up in material science. She learned an awful lot about electron microscopy and stuff like that. And she ended up in, in material science and, uh, and then uh, at Spar Aerospace um, eventually. That's where she retired from. And my dad was an electrical engineer and he was one of the early profs at the University of Waterloo, which is why I was going there. Because I was only 16 in first year, so I wasn't allowed to go anywhere weird or far away. 16? Yeah. Wow. Does that mean you skip the year? Because 17 is usually the youngest. Um, yeah. So like I, if you do things normally. I started in England, so I should have been a little bit younger. And then, I don't know, there was just some sort of a bullying on my parents' part to get me into the highest possible <laughs> grade. So um, I do remember I was eight and, and they were trying to get me to go into grade five. And in some sort of flourish that would prove I didn't belong in grade five, someone pulled out a grade five book and started asking me questions out of the back of it. It was a math book, and I aced them all, and they went, oh, okay, fine. So <laughs> if it had been a history or geography or, I don't know, sewing book or something, they would have probably, you know, put me back into kindergarten, but they decided I was brilliant because I could answer their math questions. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, uh, I, but, I, you know... I had this image of a prof sort of working at home a lot of the time and making your own hours and traveling all over the world to conferences and solving important problems and teaching people. And none of that is actually what you do the first, I don't know, 10 or so years after you earn your PhD. Uh, but it but is what you what just I, what, described is exactly what you do now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just like, fine, I'm not going to have that label, but I'm going to have, you know, that life. And that is pretty much what I've, what I've managed to, to get to. That's fun. And so when you decided at that point after you finished your PhD uh, and then you didn't want to be a prof, was it straight back to writing Fortran programs or what, where, what, how do you get from there to being, you know, a C++ uber professional and giving talks and international keynotes and whatnot? So I did actually learn C++ during the PhD. I needed to do some numerical so solving of multiple partial differential equations that represented the blood coagulation stuff. And what I was trying to do was beyond what MATLAB and Maple could do. So I had to write some stuff on my own. And um, C++ was a better choice, you know, than the other languages that were available to me. So I learned it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I wrote some stuff, which wasn't bad. And, and one of my one of my examiners could even read C++. The one who asked for the code couldn't. Uh, but the other one could and told me that it was good. Um, and then... Uh, we had started a consulting firm while I was a student to supplement you know, grad student money, which is quite, quite need in need of supplement. Let's say that. Yes. Um, to say you get paid while doing your graduate studies is technically true. Um, yes. <laughs> to say you get paid a living wage is a whole other a whole other um, a whole other problem. Yes. So, um, so we were doing some bits and pieces of contract programming in in whatever languages people wanted some stuff done in. And then when I graduated, I thought, well, well, I'll just keep doing that. So we had some some programming contracts and some training contracts. And it, it's it's interesting that you were allowed to do that because at least at uh, the school that I went to uh, and worked at LSU, um, the graduate students were not allowed to work anywhere else. Yes. And so the, there, the, there was the, some the rules about how many hours you could work. 
Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and including as a TA or whatever. And they would really prefer that you put all your time and effort into t- t- TA. Right. Um, and and the, 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 the part that I found interesting was what, when, when they told me that, uh, uh, you know, on paper, the reason is they don't want to like overwork you. They want you to focus on your studies. Um, but uh, the, the sort of the other explanation I got was, well, they want to motivate you to graduate as quickly as possible because <laughs> it's good for the school That's if right. students finish quickly. Um, or not quickly, but it's good for the school if graduate students finish on time. And so <laughs> if you're living a cushy life, you might drag on your PhD a little bit. No, they want you they, to They be, want you to be motivated, itching noodles. to get out of there. Yes. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I had better motivation than that, which is that I had one child uh, while I was doing my program, but I was pretty sure I couldn't have two. So during my final dissertation, I like to tell people this, I had a prenatal vitamin in my pocket. And I would like put my hand in my pocket and feel this prenatal vitamin in my pocket and go like. <laughs> As motivation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm going to pass this thing and get out of here and have another kid. <laughs> wow. That's great. That's awesome. Uh, how, to, how to motivate yourself to get done. <laughs> so I wasn't crazy enough to conceive before uh, my final defense, but I was, I was taking them for three months getting ready to. Yeah. Um, it was uh, good to be connected to a bigger a bigger part of the world than just what was going on in that one little room. Yeah. Wow. And then, so is that consulting firm that you started the consulting firm that you have to today, basically? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So it's been smaller and it's been bigger. I think, I think we peaked at 11 people, um, which is actually probably a really awkward size. Probably we decided to get smaller rather than trying to care, get up on to something like 50 where someone else could do the practice management. Mm-hmm. Um, because I found that with, with that many people, I spent a lot of time managing people, which I'm not super great at, selling, managing clients, um, talking to clients, because if you let developers talk to clients, that doesn't doesn't go well. <laughs> you go like, I know how I'll have more time. I'll just let the developers talk to the clients and I'll just cash the checks. That, that does not. Yeah. Business analysts uh, is a, a role for a reason. Yeah. They... they... <laughs> you know, perform a crucial role in the communicating between end users. And um, um, not that they're not all developers, you know, we shouldn't paint with a a single brush. There are many folks, I'm sure that are great, you know, at interfacing, but definitely, yes, there are are different folks with different strengths, let's say. Right. Well, a lot of my issue was my, my people were very generous. So, so people would say, well, I love it, but you know, could this button be blue, which obviously that button can be blue. That's no big deal. And then they'd say, it'd be super cool if there was another column here that showed the something or another date. And you know, I, I should be able to sort, shouldn't I be able to sort by all of these? I don't think, I don't know if I put it in the spec, but I really think like we should be able to sort by all of these. And my, my people, you know, they wanted to help. They wanted to solve the problem. They wanted to create wonderful, useful software. So they would do all those things. And, and eventually, you know, we had to say, we're just going to do what we said we would do. And then if they want us to do more things now that they've seen it, then we can charge them for that. <laughs> I think this is a common problem uh, across the industry yeah. that um, folks who are purely on the engineering side often think solely about the solution that makes, makes the most technical sense not necessarily about the thing that makes the most business sense. <laughs> well, and in fact, when I when I finally said, like, you know, we have to stop doing stuff we didn't agree to do, I expected the clients to be mad. 
And I thought, oh, it might cost us repeat business. Repeat business is really important, but do I really want a repeat of someone who, you know, it, the thing dragged on for three months or six months or whatever, doing more free stuff. And what really shocked me was the clients were happier. Yeah. So when, when they would ask for stuff they'd never asked for before and the developer would go, oh, sorry, I should have thought of that. Man, that's terrible. I'm sorry. I'll get it to you as quick as I can. And they'd be like, you know, it takes months to get what you ask for. Yeah, it's like pulling teeth, blah, blah. And then once we started saying like, hey, this is what you asked for. If you want an expansion, it's not going to be a lot of work. Let's estimate it for you. We'll do it. They'd be like, oh, I'm getting wonderful service. I got everything I asked for right away. I didn't have to ask twice. So the clients were actually happier while we were making more money. And my people, instead of apologizing, were saying that they had done a good job and that they had done what they had asked for and that they were proud of what they'd done. And all of that is all good for everyone. So. Yeah. I think most uh, most project overruns in tech are caused by a lack of a, of a clear exit criterion. Yeah. Yeah. You know? You have to you have to know when to say like this is what we plan to do like we've done it like we we may have learned some things while we were doing it but like the original work is done now right. we can start planning phase two right we can have a phase two we can have a follow on we can have a sequel whatever but like this part's this part's good now yeah yeah <laughs> we're getting to I mean we're probably gonna uh, our listeners know this but uh, we're probably gonna chop this up into two or three different episodes so this will probably be rounding out the... It's got to be in- three. Okay, it'll be three. Executive <laughs> producer Bryce I, I says... Am, I am in... I leave for Scotland on Friday, and then I get back September 9th. So we need to so. stretch this out to let you have more time in the heather. Yeah. All right, so three episodes. This one will round out the uh, introduction to... I mean, Probably if you've listened to every episode of, or not episode, but podcast appearance, you might be able to piece together everything that was said here. But hopefully there's some nugget that we got out. Is there anything you want to round out this sort of over the last, since you've been consulting? I mean, you've gone from speaker to international keynoter um, to author to Pluralsight course producer. So I don't even know how to describe like what you've evolved. You're just, and also too, I think when we were, Trying to estimate, that's actually, we should bring that up to see how well the um, Chandler keynote is done. We were trying to estimate, like, what can we expect at, for how many views, like, when we're estimating on sponsors, you know, what to tell them. And it's like, well, for a first-time conference, it's kind of hard uh, to estimate. But so I, I went through a few, you know, Chandler and you, and, like, your top talks, like, average, like, 150,000. So, like, you are very, very, like, when... Kate gives a talk. Everyone goes and listens, whether it's at the conference or after it's been uploaded on YouTube. And I'll, I'll definitely throw links to some of them. I mean, everyone know, or I would assume most people know the Stop Teaching C. That's probably one of the most. Um, that's the big one. The most views, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's got kind of a clickbaity title because <laughs> a lot of people think, oh, no, she's going to, you know, dunk on C when that's really not what the talk is about, about no, at all. No, no. The, uh, the more accurate but less dramatic title is Stop Teaching C When You're Teaching C++. Right. Right. Like if you want, want to learn C, that's fine. It's a good language. It's its own language and there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. But if you're there to learn C++, like day one being here's a quick review of C, you know, and, and day two being, we'll just wrap up our review of C. And then maybe on day three, you actually finally get to some C++. What's the point of that? So that's that yeah. talk in a nutshell. 
Thanks for listening. Before we close out, one last announcement. This came up towards the end of our two-hour recording with Kate, and that is that she is going to be in Kongsberg, Norway for the NDC Tech Town that is taking place from the 29th of August to September 1st. So if you're listening to this either on the day that this drops, August 26th, or in the couple days leading up to that, you still might be able to register if you are in the area and able to travel there. So thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day.